In neuroscience, there is a rapidly growing and evolving understanding of sensory function that is important for all occupational therapists to be tracking, particularly those who work with autistic clients. Today, we'll dive deep into a research review where the authors take three main assumptions that both neuroscientists and occupational therapists make regarding sensory function, and they'll discuss where the research stands with each one of these assumptions. You'll leave this review just feeling humbled by how much we still have to learn about sensory function in autism, yet also in awe of the advances we have made over the past few decades. One can only imagine what we will learn in the upcoming years. After we look at this review, I am going to be bringing on our expert guest, Bryden Giving, and Bryden will help us connect this complex topic to your work on the front line. Let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we dive deep into the research and pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into sensory function, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. Now, you are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. I'll give you more details on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate at the end of this episode. So bearing in mind that this may be a CEU course, I wanted to explicitly state our three learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that based on the research, you will be able to describe how sensory function differences have been confirmed in people with autism. Second, you will be able to identify how our understanding of the sensory system has evolved over the past decades. And three, you will be able to recognize gaps that remain in our understanding of sensory function in autism. So let's begin by looking at our research analysis, and then we will bring on Bryden to discuss how this research plays out in your practice. The research that we are looking at today is called Toward an Interdisciplinary Approach to Understanding Sensory Function in Autism Spectrum Disorder. This article was published in the Journal of Autism Research. It was published in 2016, and it is ranked 40th on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related research articles. So let's start with just a general question of why this paper was written. Well, it seems obvious that researchers and practicing clinicians should be working hand-in-hand. The reality is that they often work in completely different silos. Hence, papers like this one are needed to bridge those professional gaps. The authors attempt to foster collaboration by four things. First, describing the differences in goals, values, and approaches of the two different professions. Sharing similarities in conceptual frameworks. Three, reviewing where the research stands on these frameworks. And four, pointing to future research needs. Now, while several disciplines look at sensory function in autism, this article really focused specifically on occupational therapists and also on neuroscience, particularly focusing on the psychophysics and neuroimaging advances that we've seen. 
So the paper really kicks off starting with how the goals, values, and approaches of OT and neuroscience differ. Now, there is a growing overlap in perspectives within these two professions, but there are still some pretty significant differences in how sensory function and treatment are approached by OT and neuroscience. And here's a brief overview of the two disciplines and how they approach autism and sensory function. And we'll begin with the goals, values, and approaches of neuroscientists. The paper tells us that the primary goal of neuroscientists is to use a scientific method to accurately describe the neural basis of sensory function in those with autism. To achieve this goal, the neuroscience community places high value on fidelity and rigor in both stimulus delivery and response measurement. Thus, the environments they work in are typically quiet, sedentary, and controlled in order to help isolate specific senses. Measurements are objective, and they use tools such as the EEG or Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, the fMRI. Next, the paper talks about an area that we are very familiar with, and that is the goals, values, and approaches of occupational therapists. The primary goal of occupational therapists is to assess how sensory differences, along with other factors, might impact daily life for those with autism. OTs are also interested in how certain interventions may either influence sensory function or accommodate dysfunction. And as always, the ultimate goal of any OT practitioner is supporting patients' abilities to engage in meaningful life activities. So for this reason, OTs focus on actively engaging clients in natural or less structured and sterile environments. And outcomes are often measured through standardized assessments, but also non-standardized assessments, clinical observations, caregiver reports, and tracking of individualized treatment plans. So again, that part of the paper just really sets up the differences between the two professions, and you can kind of see the tension that they're getting to about how we work in different environments, we have different end goals. But the paper does transition to then these three shared perspectives that the two professions have and can stand as this basis for collaboration. And the paper kind of outlines it so It shares the perspective, and then it shares where the research stands on each one. And I definitely encourage you to read the sections in their entirety if you are particularly interested in certain areas, because there is quite a bit of complexity to this topic, and I don't want to sell it short in my attempt to kind of summarize it for you. I also want you to be cautioned as you first hear these perspectives that are shared by both neuroscientists and OTs, that even though they are shared perspectives, they, I think in all three cases, are not yet fully supported by research. So they should not be regarded as hard and fast rules. The authors are just holding these up as assumptions we've been working under. And as you'll see, these assumptions may need to change in the future. So let's start with shared perspective number one, and this has the most confusing title, but uh, hang in there with me. This shared perspective is atypical behavioral responses to sensory stimuli are a consequence of atypical neuroprocessing. In other words, there's the assumption that a difference at the brain level, the brain level of processing is leading to this atypical behavioral response to sensory stimuli in autistic people. 
So the article states that OTs and neuroscientists agree that neural differences in autistic people lead to altered sensation and therefore perception. This in turn is thought to give rise to these atypical behavioral response patterns, such as hyper or hypo-responsiveness to sensory stimuli. The paper then really dives into where the research stands with this perspective. And the authors say that significant progress has been made in categorizing autistic people's sensory differences at the neural level, at that brain level. And these differences in processing have been found by using that EEG and that fMRI in these highly controlled environments. And this is the type of progress that contributed to the recognition of sensory features within the American Psychiatric Association's 2013 diagnostic criteria for autism. But there's this big however here. However, these neural measures of altered sensory function, while they've been well-established, linking this data to clinical measures of sensory function has been difficult. Or to put it really bluntly, this perspective one, that there's this direct correlation between a difference in processing at the brain to functioning, just has not been fully confirmed by research. They just have not been able to really demonstrate how that difference at the brain level translates to a difference in function. The authors state that there may be two possible reasons for this. First, perhaps our clinical measures simply aren't sense enough to really capture the link between neural differences and differences in behaviors. For example, many of our clinical assessments are self-reports, and these measures just may not be specific enough to capture something like auditory hyper-responsiveness. Or the other possibility is that maybe perspective one is somehow wrong or incomplete and needs to be modified. Perhaps these observed neural differences related to sensory processing aren't responsible for atypical behaviors, or maybe there are contributing factors such as attention and arousal that make the picture just more complex than that simple linear correlation. And the authors really state that in the future, better measurements are needed both at the neural level and the clinical levels to really understand how a difference at the brain level may translate to how an autistic person perceives sensory information and then responds to it. So the second shared perspective that the authors went into in the paper is that differences in sensory function may explain higher level deficits in people with autism. The author stated that both OTs and neuroscientists tend to use a hierarchical framework for conceptualizing sensory function. They tend to assume that sensory representations provide a foundation for higher level areas such as cognition, linguistics, social interaction, adaptive abilities, and ultimately that ability to engage and participate in a meaningful life. And in particularly, historically, OTs have emphasized a hierarchy where proximal senses form the basis for distal senses. And then in turn, these distal senses also form a foundation for even more complex functions. This understanding is based on the seminal work of Gene Ayers. And the authors described it as the proximal senses, which are vestibular, tactile, and proprioceptive form like a foundation for how we understand the world. And then we build on that with our distal senses, which are visual and auditory. And then we build on that to obtain more complex functions such as perception, attention, cognition, and praxis. 
I think in the most like simplistic sense, this was thought of as like blocks stacked on top of each other. And if that bottom foundational block, if there was a dysfunction there, that that could kind of cause that whole tower to come tumbling down. That a patient would struggle with these more complex functions like cognition and attention if there was a deficit with like their vestibular or tactile senses. So in complete contrast to this, neuroscientists have really put a greater emphasis on describing individual senses. And their research has really just been in like one isolated area at a time. For example, the neuroscience of hearing or the neuroscience of vision and historically maybe didn't think enough about how all the senses were integrated. But in recent years, there has been a convergence of the two disciplines as both have come to recognize something called multisensory integration. And this phrase describes how information from multiple systems works together in the body. And the science is just showing us how complex and intertwined the different senses really are. In fact, complex functions like cognition can actually influence our basic senses. So in my own words, I would say that our senses, perceptions, and behaviors are much better understood as this like crazy intertwined web rather than this simple hierarchy of blocks that we've kind of historically thought of and totally different than how neuroscientists have approached it where they've really been looking at the different senses as being really isolated from each other. So that's really kind of a history on that shared perspective too of how we've evolved in our thinking about how differences in sensory function may explain higher level deficits in people with autism. And the authors close that section kind of by sharing where the research really currently stands. And they say that the research does indicate that in particular with auditory and visual stimuli, that there is this correlation with symptom severity. In other words, poor integration of those two senses seems to correlate with more severe symptoms in autism. But they really put the emphasis on correlation. Poor sensory integration is related or correlated to symptom severity, but the research does not yet indicate that poor sensory integration is the cause of the symptom severity. There's a big difference, as we know from looking at any research, between correlation and cause. So we really need much more research to understand if that assumption that sensory differences produces a cascading effect on other deficit domains, like is it that sensory difference that is causing these higher level differences? Are there other things going on? We just do not know that yet, even though we have learned a lot about the sensory system in the past couple decades. Which brings us to our final shared perspective, which is shared perspective number three, that sensory function may be malleable with treatment. Now, both OTs and neuroscientists have operated on the belief that sensory function in individuals with autism is susceptible to environmental influences and that this function is malleable and able to be improved with the right treatments. And in turn, both disciplines believe that improvements in sensory function should translate to improvements in higher level deficits. Now, based on what we just discussed with the prior two perspectives, you can probably guess that the authors state that there is just a relative lack of evidence showing that treatment improves sensory function in autistic individuals. 
They point out that there is just controversy right now over whether science supports the efficacy of sensory-based intervention in children with autism. And the studies up to this point that have looked at this just had too many issues with how they were carried out to really give confidence to the findings. They do say that recent studies have improved in validity and there may be promise on the horizons, but the author's take-home message is definitely that this idea that sensory function is malleable with treatment is still really tenuous from a research perspective and that this is the most pressing need for future research. And then the authors end with these conclusions and recommendations. The authors call on experts from various disciplines to work together to continue to test the shared perspectives listed above. They envision the fruits of such collaboration to be better translation of research into practice and, most importantly, improved assessment and intervention for persons with autism. So what were my takeaways for OT practitioners from this journal article? As always, these are my own personal takeaways, and they weren't mentioned specifically in the article. I had three main takeaways from this paper. My first takeaway was that it has never been easier for us to hear from neuroscientists and researchers. At first, I was a little annoyed by the push for occupational therapists to collaborate more with neuroscientists. It just felt really impractical for many of us. After all, how many of us have neuroscientists showing up to our daily practice? But in doing supplemental research on this article, I was just really actually blown away by how many relevant and easily accessible articles and podcasts are out there from that neuroscience perspective. There are mind-bending research articles. There are compelling interviews on podcasts, like one of my favorites, which is Two Sides of the Spectrum, where Meg Proctor, who's a OT, will every now and then have on a neuroscientist to just update us on where we're at with autism research. So it has just never been easier for us as OTs to really keep up with what's happening in the field of neuroscience. And so that push from this article, I think, is a good one and a needed one. And I ended up really appreciating it by the end. My second takeaway was that growing in our understanding of the sensory system will help us better connect and communicate with our autistic clients and with families. The more we understand about the sensory system, the better we can connect with our many clients with sensory system differences. While we may not yet know everything about how sensory differences impact perception and behavior, we can recognize that there are differences as deep as the neural level. And we know that we need to take the time to really listen to and understand our clients. Instead of trying to impose our understanding of the world on them, we can tune into their unique strengths and help them participate in the world in ways that are meaningful to them. And my third takeaway was that this topic of sensory differences is about so many of our patients, not just our autistic clients. Sensory function can feel so complicated, and many OTs may just feel tempted to shy away from understanding it. It's easier to just want to leave it to our pediatric colleagues who specialize in autism. 
But the reality is that there is an increasing number of conditions where we now know that multisensory processing is disrupted. And these include schizophrenia, dyslexia, post-traumatic stress disorder, and traumatic brain injury. And all this exciting research on sensory systems is changing how we understand just the human body and the brain. And as OTs, it is our honor and our responsibility to keep up with these shifts in thought to ensure that we spend every day making a difference in the lives of our patients. Okay, so to help us get really practical and just go even more in depth into what's this more nuanced understanding of sensory function in autism can look like in your daily practice, we are bringing on Bryden Giving. In his bio, Bryden states that his passion areas are amplifying the voices of the disabled community and addressing ableism and within the allied health professions, and also advocating for a return to occupation-based practice within pediatric occupational therapy. Bryden's love for learning has led him to pursue a post-professional doctorate in occupational therapy at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota, to help continue his work in shifting our impairment-based perspective to a social model of disabilities for our pediatric patients. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to patch Bryden into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Bryden. It's great to have you. I'm, I'm just so over the moon. So thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Yeah, I'm Brandon Giving. I'm an occupational therapy practitioner and I'm based in Minnesota. And most of my work, actually, if all my work is within pediatrics and it includes both outpatient and inpatient pediatrics. Yeah, Brandon, I think I got to know you maybe just first from social media, maybe through Facebook. I think that I could see your passion for serving clients with autism. And then you've been a member of the club and very active in there. So I knew as we had a research article on autism come up that you were definitely someone that I wanted to talk to about that. Oh, that is so kind. I I think I discovered you because you posted in one of the massive um, like Facebook groups and you were talking about your club. And I remember thinking, OT potential. What is that? That sounds really cool. Even just the name of it is super uplifting and positive. And I remember clicking on it and an online journal club. It's impressive and it's it makes so much sense and it's grown so much because I think we became friends a couple of years ago and even since witnessing it from when we became friends to now it has expanded and has grown. So I think that is so cool. Yeah, it's been a fun journey. Can you let our audience know maybe a little bit about how you got interested in treating clients with autism and just in pediatric OT in general, kind of your journey to this point? I actually don't know that story, so I'm very curious to hear it too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my first job right after graduating from OT school was in a behavioral clinic and I knew nothing about, you know, treating autistic kiddos or ABA or all that stuff until I started witnessing things during my first job that I was thinking like, wait, why are they trying to reduce my child's stimming? Or they're just things I was observing. I'm thinking like, that doesn't impact their, their daily functioning. Why are, why are we even addressing this? So that led me then to dive into reading autistic blogs and really trying to understand like, why was I uncomfortable? And then from there, I ended up learning more about an autistic's perspective of 
their experience in the world and really how much, not even with just in like rehab, but in healthcare and our society that we need to kind of challenge a lot of societal norms and our views of autistic individuals. And we need to be better about amplifying their voice. And so that's kind of really, that was the big starting point for me for realizing that I not only really wanted to work with autistic kiddos and their families, but really help amplify their voice and help basically advocate for them. So we have this research article that I just reviewed that kind of says, kind of merges where we're at with the neuroscience of how we understand sensory function in autistic kids and adults. And also the things that we have yet to learn that we don't quite understand yet. It's such, those are such complex systems and we're really just at the beginning of understanding them. I was wondering just to kick off the conversation, just the general impression that you had of this research. Did it align with where you thought we were at on understanding sensory function? Was there anything that surprised you? Um, Yeah. What was your just overall takeaway from it? Absolutely. I mean, I did appreciate with the article, one strength of the article was that it re- it recognized occupational therapists with their expertise in the assessment and treatment of sensory differences. I really did appreciate that while also validating the fact that OTs are not the only ones to look into sensory. I feel often, especially within pediatric OT, sensory processing is kind of one area that we can kind of easily claim as our own, you know, with the worlds of, you know, PT and speech and even recreational therapy and OT kind of all, sometimes the lines are blurred. It's really easy to kind of take sensory as it's an OT thing. So I'm really happy that the article recognized that. Well, there's also like, you know, neuroscientists, they actually do a lot of trying to look into how sensory processing impacts um, daily functioning of autistic kiddos as well but more from a research standpoint. But I think for me, the primary learning opportunity that really striked me with the article was that there was no inclusion or recommendations of research that the article provided or stated about incorporating or learning about autistic perspectives on their sensory experiences. I mean, autistic individuals are the experts into their sensory processing they're the true experts of their sensory functioning. And I think this article is a really good prime example of why researchers need to be better about community-based participatory research. So essentially that just means really including the community of people that are involved within your research question. So it's just incorporating them, even with the beginning research questions, because maybe your research question, you find that super important for the community, but maybe the community doesn't find it that research question is really super valuable for their daily functioning or for their, um, that are, that even values their identity. And so really kind of incorporating that community of people into your research regarding if it kind of fit into my current understanding of sensory function in autism. uh, Yeah. I don't know. My current understanding of sensory function, I think conflicts with not only with how the research describes sensory differences, but, how many of our OT interventions address sensory function. And this is kind of what I mean by that. Too often, many OT interventions aim or they view sensory differences as more of a sensory dysfunction 
implying that in autistic individual sensory experiences as something that needs to be fixed, really, which it does not need to be fixed. And our society, the environment and our treatment interventions need to take into account that in autistic individual sensory experiences, they're beautiful, they're valid, and we need to recognize them as strengths and less as an impairment that needs to be fixed per se. And so many of our sensory-based interventions that we use, I know some popular ones that a lot of pediatric OTs use, it's like, you know, therapeutic listening, Will Barger protocol, astronaut training. These interventions view a child's sensory processing as a structural deficit that needs to be changed. I mean, not only are these interventions really lacking supporting evidence with their effectiveness, but they don't incorporate what OTs do best, really. And that's addressing modifications that enable a better fit among the child, their environment, their occupations. And these impairment-based interventions don't really match with how the autistic community, you know, shares about their sensory processing. They, their sensory modulation doesn't need to be changed, and we need to be better about including their unique sensory experiences, you know, into making our classrooms, our environments, and our society just more accepting overall. Yeah, just the the title of the article, which was focused on understanding sensory function. I was like, that's a really great and important approach. Like they said in the research, they are seeing that there are neural differences. And we do want to understand that because our sensory experiences Mm -hmm. so much informs our experience of the world. But there's a big difference between understanding something and fixing something. And it seems like we've gotten too quickly to wanting to fix something that's different than our understanding of the world versus first doing the work of listening and understanding someone else's experience. Also to your point of that it didn't bring up the perspective of autistic individuals. I was thinking too about how this is a 2016 article. So it's pushing five years old. And from my perspective, so much is changing in how we understand autism, how we talk about autism, the importance of hearing those autistic voices. And to me, that's even changed in the past five years. Like, would you agree that there's been that much of an evolution, like just in the five years this was written? Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I'm not really sure really how it started coming about, but I'm really appreciative that autistic voices are being much more amplified now than they have been five years ago. I mean, five years may be a little bit slightly too late, but I'm happy that they're starting to get their voices amplified and listened to for Mm -hmm. sure. Yep. Yep. And in the world of research and of therapy interventions, five years is a very short time. I feel like we've seen so much changes in the past five years. So this is just a really rapidly evolving topic. And one as therapists, it's just such a privilege to be able to be learning and unlearning, but also a challenge to be keeping up with. Mm -hmm. our understanding of sensory. So related to that, like my initial questions after reading the article 
And when I read it, I also did some supplementary reading and was learning about multisensory processing and really just how our sensory systems are, they're just super complex. Like they're this really interesting web where different pieces of information inform other pieces of information. And even the way our sensory tracks are laid out is more complex than I thought it was. Like even the experience of touch and how the body like integrates all this different information is just pretty mind blowing. And we're still learning a lot about how that happens. And so as I was thinking about all this complexity, I was like, One of the challenges that we have is just explaining the sensory system to, first of all, parents in a way that's accurate, but also simple enough that they can understand. Like, So I guess I wanted to start there with just how you talk about sensory function. Let's start with the parents of the kids on your caseload. Absolutely. Much of even with how I understand about sensory processing. It's like a good portion of it is from autistic individuals and from listening to what they've shared about their experience, but it kind of combines with um, Dr. Winnie Dunn, who is a remarkable occupational therapist and who has contributed so much work to examining sensory processing and its impact on participation in daily life. And what I usually like to do with parents is usually with parents after they, they you know fill out the sensory profile too, which was created by Dr. Winnie Dunn, I really like to kind of have a, you know, a sit down conversation with them. And I like to share with parents that, you know, we're all sensory human beings and all sensory processing patterns are validated. Like we all have a different sensory processing pattern. Like sometimes if you're like, you know, for example, um, maybe you're at a really loud concert, but your partner is trying to like, you know, talk with you, but you can't hear your partner but then you're starting to get kind of maybe frustrated with listening to your partner because you're unable to hear your partner because of a lot of noise coming from the concert. You know, it's, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like a traffic map sometimes, even if you're just, you know, sitting at a, you know, sitting at a, at a park bench waiting for a, a bus to come by. Maybe you're, you know, you're hearing the wind, you're feeling the wind, you're hearing cars, you're hearing birds. Maybe you're with your hands, you're feeling the wood of the park bench. Like our brains, it's kind of like a, a traffic map of different sensory stimuli kind of crisscrossing each other. And from our previous conversation that we had, I loved how you said how, you know, I initially thought that sensory was kind of like strictly a linear, you know, bottom up process, but really it's like you've said it, it's so complex. They're all intertwined together, kind of like a spider web really. And usually, and that's super complex. And even as an OT, sometimes I definitely don't, I mean, I wish I understood it a little bit better too, but for parents, I really like to give the example of, um, you know, sometimes like when I, I call it the wiggles, when I'm like sitting at a desk for too long period of time, I start to lose my attention and I kind of become dysregulated. Sometimes I will provide myself with sensory input, such as maybe I'll tap my feet on the ground Maybe I will play music to help regulate myself. And we all have different ways of, you know, I think autistics, they, they view, you know, as, as stimming, you know, sometimes some, some folks will like, will tap a pencil on the table to kind of regulate themselves or stuff like that. And yeah, I love discussing sensory processing with parents. And even the research has shown that 
parents really value information to help better understand their child's sensory processing patterns. And I usually will usually provide resources to parents like blogs by autistic individuals that explain their sensory processing perspectives. Some of my go-tos are the autistic OT led by royalty, Sarah Salvagi Hernandez, Just Stimming by Julia Bescom and Spaced Out and Smiling by Jamie Knight. Because really, I mean, all of our experiences of the world should be validated. And I always try to ensure that families feel they look at sensory more as like an exciting opportunity and a better way of helping all of us understand their child more and less of kind of like a, a deficit, scary, a reason for behaviors kind of thing. Yeah, I love that you recommend those blogs and I'll go ahead and link to those in our show notes so other people can check them out too. But yeah, it is such a big learning curve and parents are definitely going to keep learning beyond our session with them. So I think that's really great to give that further reading to them. So then my other question with this complexity of sensory processing and functioning is, do you talk to the kids on your caseload about it? And if you do, how do those conversations usually go? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think you know, it really depends on the kiddo too. Um, for me, it's more about collaborating with the kiddos and having them teach me how they view their sensory processing, since really they are the experts into their own sensory processing. I mean, some kids, I mean, for a lot of kids, maybe, you know, they might, they won't even probably call it sensory. They'll call it just like really how they feel and how they participate in the world and how they react to the world. And for some kids, it, it's it's easy for them to describe it through emotions. Some kids, it's easier for them to describe it through like television or movie characters. So the critical piece for me is ensuring that these kids have their experience and their experiences and feelings validated and learning kind of their language and how they describe their experiences. Another resource I really like is called Autism Level Up. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Autism Level Up, Sarah, but... Yeah, I have. Okay. For the listeners, it's created by the incredible Dr. Amy Lawrence. She's an occupational therapist and Dr. Jacqueline Feedy, who is autistic herself. And they provide a lot of great resources about autism. But one resource I love to talk through with the kiddos, actually, and also with the families too, is they have created a really cool kind of visual graphic that discusses sensory experiences as more of a superpower that comes with you know their strengths and challenges, kind of like Superman with Kryptonite. Like Superman has a bunch of strengths and superpowers, you know, but he also has his, his challenges such as Kryptonite. So if I learn from a child that they love auditory input or they're hypersensitive to auditory input, the autism level up resource will label this as high definition hearing, which is super cool. And so you know, having high definition hearing will pose challenges in daily life, you know, such as they may perceive noises and sounds at higher volumes, which will may cause discomfort, or maybe they have a challenging time focusing on more than one sound, such as maybe listening to a friend, trying to listen to a friend in a noisy cafeteria. But having high definition hearing comes with so many strengths and opportunities. These kids with high definition hearing, they can likely hear sounds that we cannot, they are maybe more likely to be able to play an instrument, match pitch far easier than we can, and they can more easily identify objects with sounds. And so I love sharing and talking through this resource with kids and their families because it really helps the kiddo and the families look at their sensory processing as less of a deficit and more of 
like an incredible and a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing. That kind of covers how you're talking about sensory differences in your treatments. And I wanted to get just pretty specific about what your sessions are looking like, beginning with evaluation and assessment. Are you doing assessments specifically related to sensory function or can you walk me through that process? Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. So usually I will incorporate a sensory assessment into an initial eval. If maybe in the doctor order, they talk about sensory processing, or even if during a conversation with a family member or with a kiddo, if I'll ask questions about kind of general about how they interact through their daily functioning. And I'll talk about, you know, in, in informal questions about sensory, but then if they share that they have even potential sensory processing questions, then I will usually administer the sensory profile too. And I really love the sensory profile too, because which was created by, you know, Dr. Winning Dunn, the assessment views sensory processing as a beautiful way to understand a child while examining their sensory processing within the context of meaningful activities and the environment. It was recently revised, which is super exciting. And it really validates how autistics view their sensory processing and that it's, you know, it's lifelong. Oh yeah, I wanted to share with you that there, there was a research article that I read that interviewed and worked with autistic adults, you know, basically asking like, were your sensory processing patterns the same as if you were a child? And it was like about 95% of the autistic adults, you know, have stated that actually their, their unique sensory processing patterns remain the same. And so it kind of really goes to show that sensory processing really is, it's a lifelong, beautiful difference. And this assessment, the sensory profile too, really validates that it's not an outcomes measure. You're not supposed to do like a pre post test, like you're not measuring differences in sensory processing. It's really providing you a, like a tool guide to helping to better understand a child's sensory processing. So usually that'll be my go-to assessment. And then another assessment I really like, it's called the participation and environment measure children and youth created by can child, which is a remarkable research organization based in Canada. Canada is amazing, especially with OT stuff. They're like light years ahead, which is so great. (laughs) Um, But this assessment, it's a parent report measure, and it asks about participation in the home, school, and the community environments. And what's really cool about this assessment is that parents can provide answers on their child's participation in occupations. So for example, the first environment is home. So we'll ask about one occupation, such as indoor playing games. So, you know, playing with toys, playing board games. But then the assessment will ask, how often does their child participate? How involved is their child in participating? And if they would like their child's participation to change, which is super cool. But so like, what does this mean for sensory? And one question, which is really neat, is after you answer questions about the actual occupation, then following that, it's actually asking about specific environmental contexts. So like with the home environment, there's a question about how do the sensory qualities of your home maybe support or maybe provide barriers to your child's participation? And it gives examples to help parents kind of understand like what that means. And so what's really cool is with the sensory profile too, you kind of get this really cool roadmap, detailed roadmap of a child's sensory processing, but then you can get kind of more environmental 
details regarding the home, the school, and the community environments that maybe are impacted by child sensory processing. So it's kind of like a cool duality with these two assessments. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're both really complex tools, and I love just that tweak in how we think about them to be like, these are tools more for understandings versus outcome measures that we're going to be repeating. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a shift for us as therapists. And honestly, when and I was using the sensory profile with adults is I was trying to treat it similarly to the other assessments I was using, but it is made to be a tool for understanding. And I want to plug, I heard Winnie Dunn talk about it on the two sides of the spectrum podcast. She did an episode on it and that really helped me just understand the assessment better. So I encourage anyone who uses it to listen to that episode and she was really fun to listen to. So that's the assessment part of your sessions with these kids. Can you tell us a little bit about how sensory function factors into your treatments then? Yeah, it's interesting because this is another part of the article that I enjoyed because often when therapists are going to address sensory, they think of they have to only use like a sensory-based intervention And that's so not the case. And this article kind of highlighted that there is a lack of supporting evidence for sensory-based interventions used with autistic individuals. And so when OTs kind of hear that, I'm often, when I'm having my conversations, they're thinking like, okay, then how else are we supposed to address sensory function? And I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, like, let me tell you. And so a lot of that is incorporating a lot of Winnie Dunn's sensory processing framework because it highlights sense, like the sensory strengths of the kiddo. So like if with a sensory profile, I learned that a kiddo loves auditory input, they're highest seekers. And so I'm going to modify my interventions and I'm going to provide, you know, coaching strategies to families about how they can maybe adapt their activities to incorporate naturally more sounds. So like even during our intervention session, maybe we'll play more board games or games that have more noises. I will maybe ask the kiddo and their family, like, what are some, what's some music that you really, really love? Then maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll listen to some music in the background or even like teaching the families, like, you know, this is beautiful. Like maybe we could create a space and a time for the kiddo to explore sounds and to their heart's content at home and maybe even encouraging discussion about like what the kiddo hears. Like maybe, you know, if like a bird flies by, you could, you know, pull your kid aside and be like, Oh, like, did you hear that sound? Like, what did that sound like to you? And really kind of capturing and, and like amplifying that sensory difference. And so really kind of honing in on kind of like what um, autism level up with what they're created about really, honoring the high definition hearing. Mm-hmm. And so and even within that resource, you can even encourage like different extracurricular activities. So like uh, maybe I would, if I, after I learned that this kiddo has high definition hearing, I mean, maybe encourage the, um, the kid on their family to maybe participate in activities that involve music or instruments or choir or singing because they have some pretty fantastic relative strengths in that area. But even addressing sensory beyond sensory itself. I mean, you can use, for me, my go-to is really trying to teach self-regulation strategies. And so what a lot of autistics are sharing is that, you know, 
And for a lot of us too, is that sensory processing is heavily linked to emotional regulation. And so my goal then is to help teach the kiddo to kind of recognize maybe when they're, you know, having a sensory overload, or maybe I learned during an eval that the common times of the day that a kiddo starts to maybe kind of get upset is maybe when the dog is barking or when the train kind of goes by. So maybe instead of trying to kind of remediate or change this kiddo's hypersensitivity to sounds through, you know, therapeutic listening, instead, I'm going to teach this kiddo, you know, start to recognize when they're starting to have a sensory overload and kind of help teach them self-management strategies. So maybe I'll teach them to, you know, like, Maybe you're working at homework in the kitchen. So maybe we'll put some noise canceling headphones over here so you can learn to, okay, I'm starting to have a sensory overload. I need to take a quick break or I'm going to, oh, I'm going to go grab those headphones and put them on. And even there's, there's a lot of different kinds of headphones, um, in-ear, over-ear headphones, different styles, pictures that kiddos can use. So it's really more about helping kiddos recognize like their sensory processing experiences are beautiful while teaching them self-management strategies. Because oftentimes we go into a sensory overload and Mm -hmm. we've we've been able to kind of teach ourselves how to, okay, recognize I'm starting to feel a little, I'm starting to feel upset or just dysregulated. So I'm going to take a step back. Uh, Maybe I'll go on a walk, quick walk, or maybe during my lunch break, during my work shift, I'm going to, you know, maybe not go to the cafeteria, but maybe I'll go to kind of more of a, you know, solitary spot to kind of help regulate myself. So yeah, I think for me, a lot of it is, my intervention strategies are focused on really trying to better understand the sensory strengths of the kiddo and naturally modifying my interventions and the, the child's daily activities to incorporate that, but then teaching them self-management strategies. Because that's realistic, Like because their sensory processing will stay the same throughout their lives. And so my end goal is, can I teach them how to help you know manage that on their own independently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a theme of all the conversations that we seem to have on the podcast too is really thinking about setting our clients up for that long-term success. Like the goal is Mm -hmm. that they don't need us. And those kind of self-regulation skills are something that they can carry with them and modify throughout their lives as they need them. When you're writing your goals are they usually based on an occupation? Are they self-regulation related? Do you say anything about sensory in your goals? I never use sensory in my goals whenever possible. I try to keep my goals occupation-based as much as possible. And so, because like with my goals, I really like to ensure that they are just, they're focusing on the meaningful outcome. You know, my goal isn't for a kiddo to participate in a sensory intervention for, you know, a duration of time. My goal is for the kiddo to, you know, if they start to recognize they become dysregulated, that they can, you know, manage that on their own. So maybe like a, a possible goal that I would write is something like, you know, maybe per caregiver report, Susie will will utilize a self-management strategy with, you know, three verbal cues or less when starting to feel dysregulated, 75% of opportunities presented, stuff like that. Because maybe for some kids, a sensory-based intervention may be or like um, a sensory coping skill might be might be their route. For other kids, maybe it's more like a relaxation or mindfulness activity, you know, because all of our ways of regulation and self-management are different. And one practical, like real life example that is my favorites for one kiddo that I had, they loved, 
love, love, love dinosaurs. And <laughs> we were working on self-regulation together and trying to teach like emotions was too abstract for this kiddo. Like trying to like correlate their sensory experiences to emotions was too abstract. And but my my friend loves dinosaurs. And so together we created like a like a visual like resource that had a few different dinosaurs because to my to my friend, a Trinosaurus Rex embodied everything about anger and like big, big, big anger, mad, like those really big, like sensory overload, like you can't control your body kind of feelings. And then like, uh, um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Or like, uh, like a Brachiosaurus embodied, you know, like happy, calm, content. I feel like I have good control of my body, you know, kind of feelings. So like nothing can attack you know, me because I'm so big. I'm uh, saying it now. <laughs> give me my plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my end goal with this kiddo wasn't really to recognize maybe when they start to feel angry or upset or frustrated. Because even when you're frustrated and angry, like those feelings are valid. Like you can feel mad and angry, but using those terms didn't really make a whole lot of sense to them. Instead. It was more about me trying to teach them, you know, are you starting to feel kind of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex right now? And that language made so much more sense, you know, and even talking with, with them about like, do you think we can be a Tyrannosaurus Rex when we're trying to play with friends? Like, do you think we should more about a Brachiosaurus? Because I mean, this kiddo knew everything about dinosaurs. You could, they could tell you like the Latin. I mean, it was, it was so cool. So like using that language made a lot more sense with trying to, you know, correlate their sensory processing experiences to emotional regulation. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. What I love about that strengths based approach is it just sounds really fun, like, and really (laughs) interesting too. And it pushes us as therapists to be more agile because we're really getting a lot of material for our sessions from our clients. So that means that every session is going to be different and that in some ways could be perceived as harder work, but on the other hand is energizing and fulfilling and just part of the honor and privilege of being a therapist that we're having to on that agility. We're having to learn new things and that we're, we're going to keep learning new things about autism and, That is just a natural, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a natural part of our career is having to evolve and change for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's only going to help. Like if when you instead like really understand the strengths and understand like what the kiddos love and then incorporate that into trying to help like with their self-management of self-regulation or sensory overload and their sensory processing, you're not only, I mean, yes, you're making it, I mean, I will say trying like using like learning about dinosaurs and using that language to help describe sensory processing was so much fun. You also make it more like it intrinsically just makes more sense. So this Mm -hmm. kiddo is going to have higher potential for being more successful in self-managing their sensory processing and their emotional regulation. I mean, who cares if it's using lingo that, but with like using dinosaurs versus the neurotypical angle of correlating it to like abstract emotional terms, you know, then that's just a whole nother kind of aspect of trying to, you know, be more accepting of like neurodiversity and, and all that. Yep. 
And for all of us, like when I have a challenge, I lean into my strengths and utilize those. I don't focus on my deficits. Like, yeah, yeah and, good point. <laughs> and that's something that maybe we've been good and well-intentioned, but as therapists, we've maybe erred on that side. And that's just not how our autistic kids function and not how any of us function. Like we all use our strengths. That's how we approach challenges as we leverage our strengths. We've shared several resources and something that I love about you, Brighton, is that you're always learning. And I picture you having like this list of go-to resources. Would you be willing... We probably don't have time to talk through all your favorites. Would you be willing to share them with me? And then I can connect them in the show notes. And then something else that we talked about, are you still up for offering a documentation example of yes, what one of your treatments absolutely. like? Okay. Would love that. Absolutely. Good. And if anyone has any burning follow-up questions, there is a place at the end of this course in the club for like comments and reviews. And if people had a question, would you be willing to hop in there and oh, respond? Absolutely. Okay. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. There's obviously so much more to keep talking about. Mm-hmm. And I want to offer those further learning opportunities and the opportunity for questions. Our time is quickly coming to an end. So I'd like to move to our rapid fire section, which I just have several questions where just say the first thing that comes to the top of your mind, Brighton. What is the first sentence that you usually say to patients? <laughs> I'm usually beaming behind the door, come up to the door and I'm just like, hi, I'm Brighton Giving. I get to be the occupational therapist that hangs out with you and your kiddo. I cannot wait to learn more about you. Usually it's probably a little too a little too exciting sometimes, but <laughs> you're a good pediatric therapist. Oh, a little out there sometimes. I need to tone myself down. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, what is the last sentence you usually say to the patient or client or kiddo at the end of a session? Usually, well, if it's with you know, focus on the kiddo, I will tell the kiddo it was so much fun playing with you and. We'll try to tack on using like the interest like of a kiddo loves Star Wars. I'd be like, I like really loved your Kylo Ren t-shirt. I need to, I really want to get a, mm. I really want to get a Kylo Ren t-shirt myself and talk about favorite lightsaber colors or something to really help make the kiddo feel like it was a really good place to be and that they were validated. Do you usually have a parting thing for parents then? Yeah. Usually for parents, I will, I will say, thank you so much for spending your time with me. I learned so much about you and your kiddo and I'm really excited to know, to work with you. Every kiddo has their set of strengths and I look forward to amplifying those and helping us better understand your kiddo and their participation in daily life. And what's your favorite assessment to do? Does it need the to perce- be sensory? No, I definitely would say it was, it's the perceived efficacy of goal setting system for sure. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I need to make sure I have that in my assessment search. I don't think I do. I'm going to add that this weekend. What's your favorite OT intervention to deliver? Structured teaching methods, which I learned about using after taking Meg Proctor's Learn, Play, Thrive course, mm-hmm. where essentially you, you know, for a lot of autistic individuals, they learn better through visual instructions and less verbal auditory instructions. That's a strength of theirs. And so really trying to, like one example of structured teaching is 
using visual visual instructions to really teach a kiddo how to do a task instead of just you know telling them it's a huge science and an art and we'll be forever thankful for Mike Proctor for opening that door for me. Mm-hmm. What's something you've read recently that has inspired your OT practice? Oh my gosh, a new world I've been becoming so much more passionate about is mental health for kiddos. And so probably Dr. Susan Bassick's work with using a public health model approach for addressing mental health promotion in the schools, Hmm. for sure. And how do you hope a patient feels after that first initial visit with you? Validated. I really want to ensure that the kiddo feels validated. And the family feels that you know, they feel comfortable asking questions and they feel like that was a safe space for them to be vulnerable for sure. I mean, into entering like any in any office could be kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for a lot of OT evals, I'm sure it's a lot about discussing about what a kiddo needs help with or all the deficits, you know, kind of that impairment based vocabulary that often, you know, rehab is so focused on. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the medical model, but I really like to ensure that that we talk about the kiddo strengths and that the the family feels like they there's a lot of things about their kiddo they should be excited about. There's so much there's so much opportunity mm-hmm. for sure. Yep. Well, Bryden, thank you so much for this conversation today. It was um, just great to have you, and hopefully, you can come back again sometime as we're looking at some new autism research in the future. Yeah. Thanks again so much, Sarah. So much fun. Love every minute with you. Thanks again. I appreciate it. It was an honor. Wow, you all, this was a big topic to tackle in this hour episode, but I really hope that this high-level overview of where we stand with understanding sensory function in autism was helpful to you. And I hope that our discussion gave you some practical strategies for how we can be accurately reflecting this understanding to the people that we work with and the people in our community and that you just felt inspired for your practice today. If you are interested in earning a continuing education certificate for your time, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. The OT Potential Club is our evidence-based practice platform. It is currently only $49 to have access to all of our continuing education courses and the many resources in the club. So if you are not yet a member, I just highly encourage you to sign up. Once you are in the club, you will click on the CEU courses button, and then you'll be prompted to take a five question test. And if you earn 75% or higher, you will earn a certificate for listening to this podcast today and have that sent to your inbox. Okay, thank you again so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next month.